Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, episode 19. Today, I'm going to be continuing my series on the historical case for Jesus' resurrection. I originally had planned for this to only be a three-part series. However, upon further reflection, it seemed best to me to continue it, to extend it. This is because when I dialogue with non-Christians on the historical case for Jesus' resurrection, they raise questions or objections that they think either weaken my case or undermine it completely. And those objections aren't always necessarily an opposing naturalistic theory that attempts to explain the five minimal facts as good as the resurrection can, such as the swoon theory or the hallucination theory, which I refuted in the previous podcast episode. Sometimes skeptics do bring up a naturalistic explanation to attempt to explain the minimal facts. Other times they try to argue against the historicity of the minimal facts themselves. Other... but other times they raise questions such as, why does Mark's gospel end with no appearances? Mark has no postmortem appearances, while John has the most. Doesn't this show that the resurrection appearances were embellished over time? Um, or aren't Jesus's resurrection appearances like Elvis sightings? You don't take Elvis sightings seriously. Why would you take sightings of the risen Jesus seriously? Or, um, or if you're going to accept, don't you have to? refute miracle claims in other religions before you can accept the miracle claims in Christianity and things like that. In this episode, or in this episode or in the next, depending on whether or not I run out of time, I will address these other objections. I, I hope that by the end of this series, you are convinced that the resurrection of Jesus which justifies the entire Christian worldview if true, and falsifies the entire Christian worldview if false, stands on historical bedrock. Jesus has risen. His claims to be divine are true. God has put his stamp of approval on everything Jesus said, from his claim to be divine, his teachings that the Old Testament is divinely inspired and authoritative, that angels and demons exist, that heaven and hell are real, and so on. I will start off by addressing the most serious objection to the resurrection called the antecedent probability objection. This objection is probably the number one intellectual reason why non-Christian scholars don't believe in Jesus' resurrection today. In a lecture about the minimal facts case for Jesus' resurrection, Dr. Gary Habermas said, Uh, This lecture that I'm referring to took place at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics in 2017 in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, And in this lecture, Habermas said that among historical Jesus and New Testament scholars today, both Christian and non-Christian, most are in agreement that A, the minimal facts, such as Jesus' empty tomb and various postmortem appearances, are historical facts, and I, I talked about the historical evidence for these facts in part two of the series, episode 17 of the podcast. And they also agree that B, 
every naturalistic theory that has ever been proposed is an abject failure. So, non-Christian historians typically agree that it is a historical fact that Jesus died by crucifixion, his tomb was found empty, and then his disciples Paul and James sincerely believed that he appeared to them alive after his death. And they also agree that no naturalistic theory can be proposed to adequately account for these facts. One must wonder, why don't they just accept the explanation that can account for all of the historical data? Namely, that God miraculously raised Jesus from the dead. Well, this is where the antecedent probability comes in, to answer that question. In my 2015 debate with Nathan Rees, Rees unpacked the antecedent probability argument as follows. And I'm about I'm going to play the clip for you now. So first I would like to thank you Richard for having me on for this discussion and Evan as well for agreeing to take part. And I want to start out by laying out a foundation of how I approach the topic of the resurrection. And, you know, these type of claims in general, we've probably all heard the saying made famous by Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So what does this mean exactly? The term extraordinary claims isn't exactly a scientific term, and there's no easy way to quantify that. But a simpler way to think about it is a claim with a very low prior probability needs a significant amount of strong evidence to overcome that low prior probability. Uh, just for example, let's say you bought a Powerball ticket, but you lost your ticket before the drawing, and you don't know what your numbers were. But then they announce after the drawing that somebody won. If 10 million tickets were sold, you might not be ready to dig for your trash to find the ticket because that prior probability of you winning is still 1 in 10 million. But then if the local news suddenly announces that that ticket was sold at the same gas station where you bought your ticket, and on the same day – then suddenly the odds that you're missing ticket is the winner have improved dramatically. And the point of this example is just to demonstrate how it is possible for a very low prior probability um, to accumulate enough evidence to become possible. But the challenge of ahead for anyone attempting to claim that a man died and, when the, and was then resurrected three days later is much more difficult than our example. I'm not going to attempt to put an actual number on the prior probability of the resurrection, as some have done, but from our lack of past experience of people rising from the dead, we can confidently say that it's a lot lower than the 1 in 10 million in our example. And now, we cannot say with 100% certainty that the resurrection did or did not take place, but if we honestly look at the evidence for the resurrection from a historical perspective, we will not only come to the conclusion that the testimony of Paul in the Gospels is not reliable enough to overcome such a low prior probability required to accept the resurrection as a verifiable historical event, but we will feel pretty confident in saying that the resurrection did in fact not happen. Now, Christians will often use the minimal facts argument, as Evan is presenting today, and say that we know Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. His tomb was found empty by a group of women three days later. He appeared to several people after his death and the conversion of the disciples to believe that Jesus was resurrected. Now, he's also using the crucifixion as a minimal fact, and I'm not actually arguing against that today. I'm not, I'm starting with the assumption that Jesus did exist. I'm not, I'm not going to try to claim he didn't exist, and I'm not going to try to claim the crucifixion didn't happen. 
Um, not that I'm necessarily saying that the crucifixion crucifixion is 100% certain, but I'm just seeding that today. Uh, these are not historical facts, though, the, the other minimal facts that we're discussing. What we can say is that some people came to believe these things after Jesus died. Okay, let, let's let's just stop it right there. Um, uh, Nathan Rees actually does deny some of the minimal facts, but he, his approach in the debate was really more of an even if, but in fact kind of um, uh, approach. Uh, you know, even you know, even if all of the minimal facts are are true, and uh, and, and even if you know, no naturalistic theory can account for them, Jesus's resurrection is still too improbable we we just the a prior probability as he put it is against a man rising from the dead is so low that we just can't have confidence that jesus rose from the dead because as he said our our past prior experience of people not rising from the dead um if i were to if i were to put the argument in my own words people stay dead far more often than they come back to life. In fact, if 10 out of 10 people that I know who died didn't come back to life. I had a friend die uh, a few months ago from uh, lung cancer, and uh, he hasn't come back. Uh, my dog died in August of last year. He hasn't come back. My cat hasn't come back. All four of my grandparents died. They haven't come back. Um... I had a cat die in 2011. He hasn't come back. Uh, resurrections just aren't just don't happen, right? And we could probably interview a lot of people and say, "Hey, uh, how many loved ones? How many people did you know personally who died?" And they can give us a list of people they lost. And then you can ask them, "Hey, did any of these people ever come back from the dead?" And they'll say, "No, they're they're still dead." So at least. Unless you want to make Jesus the exception, t uh, nine out of ten people. If you want to make Jesus the exception, we could say nine out of ten people who die stay dead, and that makes the resurrection extremely improbable. Just as in in Nathan's lottery illustration, you've got a very, very, very low probability that when the people on TV come on and, and give your lottery number uh, or uh, give a lottery number uh, that that you you would conclude that it, it it very well could be yours because millions and millions and millions of people played the lottery. It's very improbable that you're the winner. But as Rees said in the clip I just played, uh, if he if the numbers came from a ticket that was sold, in a gas station in your town that you frequently buy lottery tickets from, that drastically increases the probability that you very well could be the lottery winner. You'd have to go dig. You'd have to. You'd have to go find your ticket and look at the numbers to to see. So just because something, as as Nathan himself said, I'm I'm repeating what he said in the clip. Just because an uh, an event or a circumstance, has a, a low prior probability. That low prior probability can be overcome with very good evidence. Now, Nathan does not think that this can be done with the resurrection of Jesus, but I do. I think that when all... I think that, yeah, if you take the ratio of people who die and stay dead and the ratio to 
the people who come back to life? Yeah, the resurrection of Jesus is astronomically improbable, if, if, if that's all you're taking into account. But you, that's not all the data there is to take into account. The ratio of people who, who die and the people who come back to life. And, and other skeptics, other a atheists and agnostics, uh, I think Rees said he was an agnostic, um, they, they'll, they'll, they'll use this argument against miracles in general. Like, you know, have you ever seen a miracle? No, neither have I. Well, you know, David Hume, his famous argument against miracles is that there's uniform experience against miracles. Well, maybe David never saw one, but... I think I think that broad I think maybe that broad I'm not going to bring human cuz cuz that's not the that's not the exactly the same argument that Rees is making but some skeptics will try to argue that way and so any miracle resurrection or whether you're talking about a resurrection or just turning water into wine uh is fantastically improbable now Rees went on to give some in his opening speech, he went on to give some illustrations that involved, um, you know, a, a picture of you standing without a helmet on Mars and, and claiming that Mars is is hospitable to life and things like that. that that's, those are, really aren't good analogies, so I'm not really going to get into those. I'm just going to get into the basic argument that Rees gave in the part of the clip that I played that resurrections have a very low prob prior probability that cannot be overcome. Now, first of all, we, we have good historical evidence, as I said in part two of this podcast series, that, Je that one, Jesus died by crucifixion, Two, his tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers Sunday morning. Three, Jesus' disciples sincerely believed that he appeared to them after his death. Four, that a church persecutor named Saul of Tarsus converted to Christianity on the basis of what he perceived to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. And five, that a skeptic named James converted to Christianity on the basis of what he perceived to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. These five facts have a lot of historical evidence in their favor, and therefore we can conclude that they are true. Secondly, no naturalistic theory that has ever been pr proposed can account for these five facts. Most of them fail in accounting for even one of the minimal facts, but even the best naturalistic theories can account for at most two one or two minimal facts like the empty tomb but the best explanation will be able to explain all five minimal facts the hypothesis that god miraculously raised jesus from the dead can adequately explain all five of these historical facts and therefore i think we are justified in concluding that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. I, in one sense, I'm not so much concerned with probabilities, but with explanatory viability. The resurrection is the best explanation of the facts, no matter what number a person might want to ascribe to its a prior probability. 
The resurrection is the best explanation because it can account for all of the data, every single fact, while, while the naturalistic explanations that I examined in the previous episode fail miserably. The resurrection exceeds in explanatory power and scope, and in, fa- in fact, it exceeds all six of the historical tests that C.B. That C. McCullough laid out in his book Justifying Historical Descriptions. Therefore, we ought to conclude that this hypothesis is the true explanation. To quote Sherlock Holmes, Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. The resurrection is the only explanation that remains, and it's the only one that can account adequately for all five facts. Ergo, in Detective Holmes's reasoning, it must be the truth. If you can think of another explanation, be my guest. But until then, I'm sticking with He is Risen. It passes all six of C.B. McCullough's tests for historical vi- uh, for a viable historical theory. I think it works. It's the only hypothesis that works. I think the fact that it's the only hypothesis that works in explaining Jesus' empty tomb and various post-mortem appearances that does weigh in favor of its probability to a certain extent. Now, whether you think it weighs in favor of its probability enough, well, we'll have to, we'll have to look at other arguments. And this is where my next point comes. I want to make my next point to add to that. So, if you want to imagine a scale in which most people who die stay dead is on one side of the scale that weighs against the probability of Jesus's resurrection and you've got the minimal facts the five minimal facts plus the fact that only the resurrection hypothesis can explain the minimal facts on the other side of the scale just imagine them as bricks the one the one brick is 99 uh, the vast majority of people we've ever known stay dead that's on one that's one massive brick on the on one side of the scale then you have two large bricks one brick says the five minimal facts and the other brick says only the resurrection hypothesis can explain all five minimal facts that's on the other side of the scale weighing in favor of Jesus's resurrection so now i'm going to add another brick to the scale to make it lean in favor of the probability of Jesus's resurrection this or this this brick is that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, the existence of the minimal facts is improbable. If Jesus, I would argue that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then it is extremely improbable that the minimal facts should be facts. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we should expect that his tomb would be occupied. His disciples would never have claimed to to believe and come to believe that they had seen him and that two skeptics Paul and James would never have come to believe that they had seen him risen from the dead they uh, they would have remained skeptical for the rest of their lives uh, we would ex- we would have expect that just like the vast majority of so-called messiahs who got themselves crucified in the first century Jesus would just be another failed self-proclaimed Messiah forgotten by history. And yet he's not. And yet his tomb is empty. Or 
His disciples did come to believe that they saw him alive. Saul and James, uh, Paul and James did become Christians on the basis of what they perceived to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. I would argue that, that these facts that most historians and scholars agree upon, even the skeptical non-Christian scholars, would not be facts if Jesus had not risen from the dead. At the very least, there should have, there should, at the very least, there should be some naturalistic explanation that can adequately account for them, and yet there isn't. Here's an analogy. Let's say that a woman is brought before a jury on charges of murder. She's accused of having her young, uh, of having killed her young son. Now, at the start, you might think that it's extremely unlikely that she is guilty. After all, the vast majority of mothers who've ever lived do not harm their children. They love and care for them. In light of this background information, the claim that she is guilty is enormously improbable. And you'd be justified in thinking that, uh, that if the background knowledge was all you had to go on. However, Suppose that investigators found a bloody knife in the back seat of her car next to a mud-covered shovel. In her house, they found a pair of pants that had been chemically spot-cleaned. They also have several eyewitnesses who said that they heard a child screaming just before seeing the defendant carrying a black garbage bag and shovel out of her house in the middle of the night, the same night as the murder. When investigators found the dead child, he was in a black garbage bag. The defendant also had a history of mental illness and domestic violence. In light of these minimal facts, the claim she is not guilty becomes improbable. The defendant's, let's say that the defendant's attorney threw out every alternative explanation he could think of, but the jury saw, all saw various holes in his alternative explanations and rejected them. They knew that the claim this woman murdered her child could explain all of the evidence. The claim this woman murdered her child could explain all of the evidence. Even the best of the defense attorney's explanations could account for one piece of evidence at the crime scene at most. But the majority of his explanations didn't even go that far. The only explanation that could account for all of the facts is the conclusion that the woman the defendant murdered her child. Now, it would be an invalid move on the part of the defense attorney to argue that the majority of mothers uh, care for their children rather than killing them, and he's never and he's personally he personally has never witnessed a woman killing uh, her child, and so the probability against any mother ever killing her child is so great that they should they should not return with a guilty ver a not guilty verdict. They should return with a not guilty verdict. Sure, the hypothesis this woman killed her child is improbable in light of the background information that mothers usually don't kill their sons, and that we've never, and that we personally never witnessed a mother kill her son. But the verdict, the guilty verdict, is still justified. In fact, the existence of the evidence is improbable if she is not guilty. If she's not guilty, the detectives should never have found what they found. If she didn't do it, what are the odds that the minimal facts at the trial, i.e. the blood-covered knife 
in the back of the car, the muddy shovel in the trunk, the dead child being found in a black garbage bag, the eyewitness statements of her leaving the house with a black garbage bag and shovel, the history of mental illness and domestic violence, etc., should all exist. In the same way, the existence of the minimal facts that Jesus died by crucifixion Jesus' empty tomb, Jesus' post-mortem appearances to his disciples, Paul and James, should not exist. They should not be facts if Jesus did not rise from the dead. It's enormously improbable that these five facts would be true if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Let me put it this way. Of all the dead people we know of, None of them left an empty grave behind and started showing up to us and everyone we knew. When my grandfather passed away in 2001, my parents and I didn't go down to the tomb the next day, find it empty, and then when we came back home, we found him standing in our living room saying, Peace be with you. That didn't happen when my grandmother died in 2003 either. Her casket stayed occupied, and we didn't see her again after that. My cat Sunshine died in 2011. We buried him in a cardboard box in our front yard. To this day, his body remains in that box. No one saw him meowing at the front door just a few days later. Uh, Like I said earlier, uh, my dog Max died last year, and my father and I buried him behind our shed. His grave also remains occupied. None of us saw him sitting at the front door wagging his tail three days later. Now, certainly there have been people who claim to see the spirit of their loved one appear before them shortly after they die. You only need to watch one or two episodes of Unsolved Mysteries to know that. But, while Grandpa might show show up to Grandma in their bedroom for a few moments before departing to the afterlife, Grandpa's not going to show up to Mom, Dad, his children, his siblings, an entire stadium of people, and his co-worker who hates his guts. And Grandma isn't likely to find Grandpa's body missing from the cemetery. That kind of thing just doesn't happen with people who are not resurrected. However, that did happen following Jesus' death. The skeptic can argue dead people usually stay dead. But I can respond with dead people usually don't disappear from their graves and immediately proceed to appear in in front of everyone they knew. Yeah, dead people usually stay dead. But dead people usually don't disappear from their graves and immediately proceed to appear in front of everyone they knew. It would be astonishing that the five minimal facts are facts if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead. To return to the uh, to return to the um, the woman murdered her child analogy, uh, there should at least be a, vis- a viable alternative theory other than she is guilty. Likewise, there should at least be a viable explanation for the minimal facts than he is risen. But there is no explanation. Other explanations: hallucinations, the swoon theory, stolen body theories, uh, wrong tomb theory. Um, group think theory, it's, none of these can adequately account for the minimal facts. And here's another brick to add to the scale weighing in favor of Jesus' resurrection. And that is that there is more to take into account than the ratio of dead people to resurrections.
Uh, well, I've already said to a certain extent that there's good historical evidence that Jesus died by crucifixion, his tomb was empty, he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to Paul, he appeared to James, and that no naturalistic explanation can account for these. you got to take that into account. I think that weighs in favor of Jesus' resurrection as, as being more probable than not. But, aside from the minimal facts and the fact that no explanation other than the resurrection can explain them, you have things like the existence of God. You know, you'll never hear an adherent to Judaism or Islam make this objection against the resurrection. And why is that? Well, because Jews and and Muslims believe in the existence of an omnipotent God. If an omnipotent God exists, that upsets the whole probability structure. If we live in a theistic universe, that makes resurrections way, way more plausible. Additionally, if it can't, if it, um, so does God exist? And is he omnipotent? Well, I have argued, I've given several arguments in this podcast episode to think that God does exist. In episodes two and three, I unpacked the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. The Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence goes like this. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore the universe has a cause. The first premise is undoubtedly true. To deny it is to say that something can come into being from nothing. That is surely absurd. Nothingness has no properties. Nothingness is a, is a term of universal negation. It is the absence of all being. Since it has no properties, since it is not even an it, therefore it cannot cause any effects. It doesn't have any causal properties. So something can... Ex, nih- ex nihil nihil feet. Out of nothing, nothing comes. But moreover, we've never seen any examples of things coming into being from nothing. And every time we do see something come into being from nothing, it always has something causing it to come into being. The first premise is just... I I think the first premise is just axiomatic, to be honest. But the second premise, which is the more controversial one, in episodes two and three of the Cerebral Faith podcast, and also in my book, The Case for the One True God, which you can buy on Amazon.com on paperback and Kindle, uh, I argue that... Big Bang Cosmology, The Second Law of Thermodynamics, and two philosophical arguments concerning the nature of actual infinites show that the universe began to exist out of nothing. So given that two, given the truth of the two premises, the conclusion follows, therefore the universe has a cause. And I explained that I gave, and I unpacked in those two podcast episodes, and in the case for the one true God, my book, that the cause of the universe has to have certain properties. It has to be spaceless because space did not begin to exist until the Big Bang. You cannot be, if something did not exist until you brought it into existence, then you cannot be inside of that thing. If you build a house, you cannot be inside of the house prior to building the house. If you build a car, 
you have to be transcendent to the car. You cannot be inside the car since you're bringing the car into existence. Likewise, since the cause of the universe is the cause of all space, then the cause cannot be a spatial thing. It cannot be inside of space. It is spaceless. It is transcendent to space. The cause must be timeless for the same reason. Time began to exist at the Big Bang. So the cause of time cannot be in time, at least until time began. It must be immaterial for the very same reason that it is spaceless. Material objects have mass. They're composed of atoms. They occupy spatial dimensions. And if there are no spatial dimensions in existence, then no material objects can exist. Since the cause of the universe clearly exists, I mean, whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, we've established that, that the universe has a cause, then, since it's not material, it, it's non-spatial, it has to be immaterial. Only an immaterial thing could exist without space. It must be uncaused because there, it, it's timeless. Timelessness entails that it never began to exist, and it be, uh, because for something to come into being entails a before and after relationship. There was a time before X existed, and a time after X came into existence. But you cannot have a before and after without time. So since X, the cause of the universe, is timeless, the cause of the universe cannot have had there cannot be a time before the cause existed and a time after the cause of the universe came into being it must be unimaginably powerful because it created the universe out of nothing and it must be personal one of the reasons it must be personal is that it is immaterial and of all of the things that philosophers know of that can fall into that category uh there are two, category, two categories that, of things that philosophers realize can be immaterial. Either abstract objects, like numbers, or unembodied minds. However, abstract objects can't cause anything. That's part of what it means to be abstract. The number seven, for example, can't cause any effects. Since abstract, obje since abstract objects cannot be the cause of the universe. The only other explanation is an unembodied mind, something like a soul or a spirit. So, the cause of the universe must have been a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, enormously powerful, if not omnipotent, personal being. Something a lot like God. Now, the fine-tuning argument for God's existence, the fine-tuning argument that I talked about in chapter four, I mean, uh, in episode four of this podcast, and in episode, and in chapter two of my book, The Case for the One True God, the fine-tuning argument shows that not only did the cause of the universe, not only did the creator of the universe bring the universe into existence, but finely tuned the laws of physics to an extraordinary degree to permit life to come into existence. 
the laws of physics being um, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the force of gravity, the force of electromagnetism, the expansion rate of the universe, the level of low entropy in the universe, and so on. And the ontological argument for God's existence. I talked about this in episode 7 of this podcast. The ontological argument for God's existence uses modal logic to show that if it is lo- that if it is logically coherent that a necessarily existing omnipotent omniscient omnipresent morally perfect being exists then it exists in some possible world. And if it exists in some possible world, it exists in every possible world. And if it exists in every possible world, it exists in the actual world. And if it exists in the actual world, then it exists. An omnipotent, a, mac- a maximally great being, a which is a necessarily existent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, morally perfect being, exists in the actual world. And so, and... I think the Kalam cosmological argument, I think the fine-tuning argument, and I think the ontological argument are sound. They have logically valid premises, and the premises are true. We have good reason to believe that the premises are true. Now, if you haven't listened to those podcast episodes, please go and listen to them. The episodes in which I unpack these arguments in a lot more detail are episodes 2, episode 3... Episode 4, Episode 5, Episode 6, and Episode 7. But, if you really want an in-depth treatment of these arguments, I recommend getting my book, The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. Uh, That's because in these podcast episodes, I don't have the time to address all of the objections, the potential objections one could raise against the argument. So you may have you may listen to those podcast episodes and after you get done listening to them you you're like, I don't really think you made your what about this? I don't think you made your case. What about this or what about this? Well, perhaps I may have addressed the this, whatever this is in my book. I did uh, I did make the effort to address the most popular objections and the most powerful of the objections. Uh, I chose the most potent and most widely used objections against the argument, I, and I address those in the podcast episodes, but you may have a different objection entirely that maybe isn't as commonly used by atheist philosophers or scientists and uh and I may have addressed it in the book. So get the book if you really want a thorough treatment of these arguments. But I, I think God exists. I think a maximally great being exists. If God, if we have good evidence that the greatest miracle of all occurred, the creation of the universe out of nothing. Modal logic shows that a maximally great being exists, and part of being maximally great is being omnipotent. So, if if you accept that, the an, the antecedent probability, the probability scale, tips 
drastically in favor of a resurrection because there is a being that is able to do miracles. These arguments show that there is a being who is able to do miracles. The former atheist Anthony Flew put it like this, quote, Certainly, given some beliefs about God, the occurrence of a resurrection does become enormously more likely, end quote. And he was an atheist when he said that. He, even Anthony Flew conceded that if God exists, miracles are way more probable than, than if you look if you go then if you go into the uh, investigating the evidence without that presupposition of course it doesn't need to be a presupposition we have good arguments for that also i i, I argue in my book the uh, my redeemer lives evidence for the resurrection of jesus I have a whole chapter using the criteria of authenticity that I talked about in part one of this series to show that the historical Jesus had a ministry of miracle working. And I argue that these were le indeed legitimate miracles, not just things that appeared to be miracles. I use the criteria of authenticity to establish that the events happened in the first place, and then I look at alternative explanations that, that could be posed uh, to explain uh, how Jesus did it uh, that doesn't involve the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus had a ministry of legit miracles, wouldn't that... Wouldn't that, wouldn't you say that that would weigh in favor of Jesus' resurrection? If Jesus is going around rise, um, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, healing lepers, healing cripples, calming the seas, and other things that are impossible by natural means, doesn't that make it more likely, even more likely, that he could rise from the dead? There are other things to take into account. If the New Testament is historically reliable... Now, I, in retrospect, I regret... I kind of regret not having a chapter on this. I don't, I don't know how I would have written it. I don't know how... I, I don't know. Maybe I'll do that in a future edition. But if the New Testament is historically reliable, and by that I mean... There are points of historical contact, many points of historical contact, in which the authors of the Gospels and the Epistles get it right, then I think that would drastically improve the odds that Je of, of Jesus has actually have been raised from the dead. Because if the... In, um, and I, I think Frank Turek and Norman Geisler do an excellent job of this in their book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, uh, demonstrating the historical reliability of the New Testament documents. Now, the minimal facts approach does not presuppose the general reliability of the Gospels. It doesn't just not presuppose the inerrancy and inspiration of the, of the New Testament, but it doesn't even presuppose its historical reliability. We just use the criteria of authenticity. In a minimal facts approach, we just use the criteria of authenticity to pluck certain nuggets of historical truth from the New Testament and say, okay, these are facts. How do we best explain them? Um, and we we don't really care in the it, it, we 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 can leave the reliability to the side. But I will say 
that if the New Testament is reliable, that certainly that certainly makes it more probable. Um, oh gosh, who was it? It was some scholar called, and he wrote a book called The Book of Acts in a Hellenistic setting or, or something like that. Um, the, and he showed that the Book of Acts, he showed one, that the Book of Acts was written by Luke, the, um, the traveling companion of Paul, and that the Book of Acts got 89 historical facts correct using archaeological evidence and ec- and extra biblical documents uh, corroborating where the the book of acts gets it right in so many places 89 sources now luke who wrote the book of acts he also wrote the gospel of luke and he got a lot of things right in there as well now, if he could get even minor details, like, oh, the, the names of governors at certain times uh, and, and things like that, there's a whole list. At Frank Turek, he just, in his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, he just gives a Brobdenagian list of, of things that the book, that is historically confirmed that the Book of Acts got right. And he... It, okay, I'm, wait. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. If the Book of Acts could get that many stu- that many things right, even things that you wouldn't th- throw away lines, throw away lines about about historical individuals and places and and describing the way places looked and things of that sort, don't you think that he'd be able to get it right on something of much more importance, like the resurrection of Jesus? Um, in his book, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, Craig Blomberg shows 59 things that the Gospel of John gets right, historically, corroborated by archaeological evidence, extra-biblical documents, you know, like Josephus, Tacitus, Lucian of Samosata, and so on and so forth. John, he makes the case that the Gospel of John is incredibly reliable because he he gets so many things right. And uh, in I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler list these 59 things. I mean, the you know, it's a brief list. It doesn't go in-depth. The, the Craig Blomberg's book goes in-depth, but Frank Turek, he just... You know, one, two, three, four, five of the things that John gets confirmed. And uh, Turek and Geisler also, they apply the criteria of authenticity as a sort of cumulative case to make the case for the reliability of the Gospels. Like, they have a whole chapter on a plethora of embarrassing things that the New Testament writers admit. So, therefore, these things are historical and we should believe what they're saying. And... I'm hoping to have Tim McGrew on Dr. Tim McGrew, you know? You know Dr. Tim McGrew if if you if you're a New Testament studies guy. Yeah, I'm Facebook friends with him and I'm hoping to have him on this podcast at some time making a case 
for the historical reliability of the gospel. So you can come back for that. Uh, J. Warner Wallace, in his book Cold Case Christianity, makes a case um, for the traditional authorship of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he not only uses traditional arguments in favor of that, but he also uses his own detective principle uh, called the, um, oh, what was it, FSA, Forensic Statement Analysis, uh, to show that some of the things that Mark says in his gospel, he makes a cumulative case that the way that Mark says things about Peter and about Peter's involvement in certain things makes the most sense if, if Peter really was the source behind Mark's gospel. And certainly, if Peter wrote Mark, I mean, Jesus' disciple, the one who was traveling around with him, and if John wrote John, wouldn't that increase the probability that Jesus rose from the... If the New Testament is reliable, and especially if the Gospels are eyewitness accounts, wouldn't that increase the probability? If the Shroud of Turin is legitimate, that would increase the probability. Now, I'm no expert on the Shroud of Turin, um, but I have heard, I have read Gary Habermas in his book *The Historical Jesus* give a defense of the Shroud of Turin's authenticity, and he makes a pretty good argument. And uh, Dave Glander, uh, at the, he, he gives some talks at apologetics conferences uh, about the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin, and I think I think they're pretty good. I think the Shroud probably is legitimate. So. If that's the case, doesn't that weigh in favor? If new, if near-death experiences, if there are legitimate near-death experiences, then you have to be open to resurrection. Why? Because near-death experiences are a type of afterlife, and, and resurrections are a type of afterlife. So, now I haven't, in this podcast episode, demonstrated the historical reliability of the the Gospels in the New Testament and the uh, epistles of the New Testament. Uh, Hopefully Tim McGrew will do that for me in a future podcast episode. And it's beyond the scope of my case here to make a case for uh, the Shroud of Turin and and near-death experiences. But I think the New Testament is reliable. And I think the Shroud of Turin is legitimate. But... Of what I have made a case for in this podcast series, uh, in this podcast in general, uh, and uh, in my book, The Case for the One True God, the minimal facts are historical facts. Jesus died by crucifixion. His tomb was empty. The disciples believe that they saw him alive after his death. Paul a church persecutor converted on the basis of what he perceived to be an, a, an appearance of the resurrection of the of Jesus and 5 James converted on the basis of what he perceived to be an appearance of the resurrection of Jesus that's one brick on the scale imagine that scale in your mind where on the left side of the scale you have most people who die stay dead that weighs against the probability of the resurrection, but on the right-hand side of the scale, you have the minimal facts. And you also have a brick that says only the minimal fact, only the resurrection 
can explain all of the minimal facts. No naturalistic hypothesis can. You also add to the right-hand side of the scale the existence of an omnipotent God, as demonstrated by the particularly the Kalam cosmological and the modal ontological arguments. You have Jesus' three-year ministry consisting of miracles. You have the historical reliability of the New Testament. Now, the first four that I listed, I have, you know, I haven't demonstrated the historical reliability, but I would add that. And I would add that most people, most people who are not resurrected do not appear to everyone they know. Most people who are still dead, most people who are, who died and stay dead do not leave empty tombs behind, and they do not appear to multiple people on multiple different occasions. That has never happened to me, and I'm pretty sure it has never happened to you. Yes, you have some ghost stories like grandma, Grandpa appearing to Grandma to say goodbye before he departs to the afterlife, but he doesn't appear to Grandma, his friends, uh his co-workers, his boss, an entire stadium full of people, and when Grandma goes to, to the tomb ne the next day to leave flowers on the grave, she doesn't find that the casket is empty. So, does Jesus' resurrection, given all of the bricks on this, on this scale, this mental scale, is the resurrection of Jesus probable or improbable? I would argue that in light of the full scope of the evidence, in light of all of the scale's bricks, Jesus' resurrection becomes more probable than not. Now, it's true that I, I haven't demonstrated the factuality of all of the bricks that I said should be put on the scale. Uh, I... Um, but I talk about the existence of God, Jesus' ministry. I, I talk about the existence of God in uh, episodes 2 through 7 of this podcast series, so you can go back and look at those. But I highly encourage you to look at, at my book, The Case for the One True God. It, it gives a thorough defense of the arguments for God's existence. Um, and in... My book, My Redeemer Lives, I have a whole chapter where I apply the criteria of authenticity to Jesus' ministry as a miracle worker. And I hope to have Tim McGrew come on here to talk about the reliability of the, the New Testament at some point. But I, but I obviously have demonstrated the factuality of three of the metal balls already in this podcast series on the resurrection. The, the historical, the minimal facts, the fact that only the resurrection can explain all the minimal facts, and that most people don't, and, and that most dead people don't appear to everyone they know. Uh, I think when you take all of the data into consideration, Jesus' resurrection comes out to be far more probable than not. So, that is my response to the antecedent probability objection.
Now, in the next episode of this podcast, I will address some questions, frequently asked questions, um, that people raise in my discussions with them on the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Like I, you know, the ones, like I said, like at the beginning of this podcast episode, oh, why does Mark record no gospel, uh, no resurrection appearances? Doesn't this show that... There was embellishment over time because John include uh, Mark includes no appearances, but John includes a whole bunch of them, most of them even. So doesn't that doesn't that show uh, embellishment over time? I'm gonna address questions like those in the next episode. Thank you for listening, and again. If you want an in-depth treatment of the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, get my book, My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. It is available on Amazon.com. Just go to Amazon.com, type in Evan Minton in the search bar, or My Redeemer Lives, Evan Minton, and you'll see it. It's $4.99 on Kindle. It's $11, I think. No, 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 it's ten ninety nine on paperback. Uh, it's free on Kindle if you get uh, Kindle Unlimited. And uh, for the arguments for the existence of God I talked about, uh, get the book The Case for the One True God, the, the Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. It's also available on Amazon.com for eleven ninety nine paperback of... I think it's five ninety nine on Kindle. I don't know. It, it's not much, and uh, you can see a thorough treatment of that. But if you want to get, you can also get a treatment of the arguments uh, in this podcast uh, by list going back and listening to episodes two through seven. Uh, but they won't be as in depth or as thorough as as they would in the book cuz I try to keep these podcast episodes to 1 hour long. The reason I do that is because I know that some people they they have a short attention span and and even 1 hour might be a little too long for them. Uh, I don't want this podcast to run for 2 hours if I can help it. Some of them some of the podcast episodes have run for an hour and a half, but I try not to let that happen. I try to keep the podcast episodes to an hour. Because I don't want people to go, oh, this is too long. I can't listen to this. So I I try to cut it down. But that limits the level of content that that I can put out. So I either have to not talk about it or, like I'm doing here, just do a series of podcast episodes. So break it up. But uh, if you if you want to go on ahead and, and look at the 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 treatment of the arguments for God's existence, you can do that. You go to the wherever you're listening to this podcast, wherever you got this podcast from, and just go back to those earlier episodes and listen. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And I will come back with the final installment of this series. Happy Easter, everyone. God bless you. See you next time.